singing. Uh, Let us turn once again to the book of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to consider this verse 22, and we're going to think upon the subject out of jail free. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, but the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the Word, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the glory of the gospel. And help us to glory of nothing else save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for your help tonight. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen and amen. One of the most popular board games which has rarely lost its appeal is Monopoly. Some people hate it, of course, because it can just drag on and on and on. Others love it, practicing their business skills, acquiring money, buying property, building houses, hotels, charging rent, and bankrupting players, and that quest to monopolize. There's one place on the board, however, which you cannot monopolize, and that's jail. And when you land on the go-to-jail space, you lose time and you lose money. But if you are fortunate enough to have in your possession an out-of-jail free card, any hope that opponents may have had that your attempts at monopolizing will have come to an end or maybe temporarily halted, well, those hopes will be dashed because you can get the card out and suddenly you're back in play. Well, here in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22, we have the ultimate out-of-jail free card because the word concluded means to be shut up, to be confined in a prison. But the Scripture hath shut up all people in sin. The Scripture imprisons all people in sin. Now, we could say that the Scripture concludes. The Scripture presents this argument and teaches us that all people are sinners, that they're in the prison house of sin. And that's true. The Scripture does teach that. But what Paul says is even stronger. The Scripture itself, he says, is a prison house. The Scripture itself actually confines the sinner in his sin. And that's a very interesting way of putting it, and that's something we need to try and understand tonight. But then we are taught that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So there is a purpose why the Scripture confines people in their sinful state in order that men and women might come out of their sin and might put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, that they might be free through faith alone. Unlike Monopoly, however, this is not a game. Life is not a game. Life is reality. And eternity is an even greater reality because life will be gone and like the mist that will fade away. But eternity, heaven or hell, that will be constant. 
and unchangeable. So there's no greater reality than this. And I hope you haven't come to church tonight just to fill up a spot in a pew, just to be in the company of others, just to do what you think is the right thing to do. I trust you've come to church tonight to hear the Word of God. And if you're not saved, you are in prison. You're in confinement. And if you are saved, you're free, gloriously and wonderfully liberated. Well, what side of the divide are you? This is the question. So let's look at this text under the heading, Out of Jail Free. In the first place, let's think about the universal prison. We are told that the Scripture concludes that all are under sin. Now, there are people tonight in our own little province, and they're in prison. They're in McGabry, McGilligan, or Hydebank. They have broken the laws of the realm and have been deemed to be deserving of incarceration. Freedom removed, and justice has done this very thing. But there are others who have committed criminality as well. Some have committed even greater crimes than some of those that are in prison, and yet they have escaped. But they too are in prison. They're in the prison of their own conscience because they know what they have done has been wrong, and they are living with that guilt upon their shoulders day and daily. And they're living with that fear that one day there might be evidence and that knock will come to the door and their freedom will be removed. And there are others who have been living fairly decent, respectable lives, who have upheld the laws of the realm, but they too have a guilt upon them, a guilt that they may not recognize or even know or even think about, but they are without God and haven't trusted Christ. And there are even some who are religious, church-going people, hymn-singing people, Bible-carrying people, attending place of worship, and yet they too are under sin. Because the Bible tells us that the Scripture has concluded all under sin. The Scripture imprisons all in this place of confinement. The Scripture incarcerates men and women. And perhaps that's the best way of understanding this. The Scripture judges us just as the judge will put the offender away, found guilty in the court of law, put them away, make that declaration. The key will be turned in the cell, and so it is. The Scripture confines the sinner in his sin because the Scripture judges that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, this scope is very wide, isn't it? The Scripture concludes that all are under sin. No one escapes. No one escapes. Yes, the person in Magabri tonight is a sinner, 
And the person who lives with the weight of some terrible guilt is a sinner. And the person who is irreligious and atheistic is a sinner. And the person who swears and gets up to all kinds of immoral escapades, that person is a sinner. But the person who hasn't come to Christ, hasn't admitted to their sin and confessed their sin, that person too is a sinner. And it doesn't really matter what religion we are, whether we are Protestant, Roman Catholic, Jew, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, whatever, all are in this jail, for all have sinned. doesn't matter what denominational affiliation we might be. Free Presbyterian, Presbyterian, Elam, Methodist, Independent Methodist, Baptist, brethren. It, it's not our denominational label that gets us out of this jail or sets us free. You see, no church saves, and no religion saves, and no amount of decent, good living saves, because the Bible says that all have sinned. The Bible teaches us quite plainly, all are under sin. There is no difference. The word under sin would teach us that the sinner is dominated by sin. Sinner is under the authority of sin because he's in this prison house, this prison house of sin. So let's just try and understand this a little. What does it mean to be in this prison house, and what does it mean to be under the authority and the dominion of sin? Well, in verse 10, we have a, a dreadful word. It, it's the word curse. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And this is how we understand this term sin. Sin is the breaking of God's law. That's what sin is. That's why sin is a very unfashionable word to use nowadays, because People want the right to do as they want and to make up their own rules and to have their own moral code. People don't want to consider sin because sin defines our relationship with God. That's what sin is. That's why people want to, don't want to think about sin. Because ultimately, sin is defined by God and sin is defined by the law of God. And that is the definition of sin. And when we break God's law, whether we break it in deed or word or even in heart, even the very deceitful thought that latches onto us, and we've all got them, it all makes us sinners, and sin curses us. In fact, verse 13 talks about the curse of the law, the curse of the law. So, we are under the curse of God's law. The word curse, terrible word, awful word. To think that you're under the curse the law of the Holy God, under sin. It is to be doomed. It is to be under judgment. That's what it is. And that, of course, takes us right back to the Garden of Eden, whenever Adam and Eve sinned. God cursed the ground. He cursed the land. He, he cursed the beautiful creation that He had made. He cursed man. And he cursed woman. We've all suffered the effects of that ever since. Because all have sinned. 
Our very humanity makes us sinners. There's no word more serious than this, to be under sin. There is no earthly escape from this condemnation. You cannot be cleaned up and set free from this condemnation. And furthermore, sin is something that is progressive. It continues. It corrupts even more. It shuts us up into our passions. It enslaves us to our delusional and deceitful hearts and minds. And it sets us on a path to destruction. That's what sin is. To be a sinner is to be facing the judgment day. It is to be facing hell with the awfulness of hell and all that that means. And there's something else we need to think about. It's very unfashionable. Hell. Sin, judgment, hell, accountability to God. These are the eternal realities we need to think about because the Bible says that we're all under sin. But how is the Scripture a prison house? How does the Bible become a prison house? Well, the Apostle Paul put it very well in Romans chapter 7, in the verse 9. He talked about his own experience and how the Scriptures imprisoned him. He said, For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, when he got God's word, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. You see, what he was saying was this. Before I, I got God's word, I didn't realize I was a sinner. I thought I was doing very well. I was very happy and very content in my religious pursuits. I thought I was living a decent life as a Pharisee, doing God's will. But whenever the Scriptures came, I died. Because suddenly I understood this. I am a sinner before God. That's how the Scripture imprisons us. And you see, you cannot be set free from the imprisonment unless you first of all realize that you are in prison. And so the first thing the Scripture needs to do to you is to make you unhappy. If you're resting on your laurels this evening without a care in the world, waiting for 8 o'clock to get away home, to get a cup of tea, you haven't got it. You've missed the whole message of Scripture. and You've missed eternal realities. And you're living in some kind of vague dreamland. But I tell you something. One day you'll waken up in hell and there'll be no going back, and you'll wish you were in that gospel meeting, and you'll wish you had an opportunity to repent and turn to God, but it'll be too late. And so our prayer for you tonight is that the Word of God will make you absolutely and totally miserable in your sin as you understand this solemn fact that you are under sin. You may have noticed the little track sitting on the foyer. I got these at the minister's week of prayer. Uh, a brother in the, the Hillsborough congregation, he was burdened by this sermon that he had heard or read. 
It was preached by Dr. Paisley many years ago. No place like hell. It's a very graphic title. It was a very solemn title. A very frightful thing. No place like hell. And they are free, and you can take one. I would encourage you to take it and to read it. There's no place like hell, for there is no darkness like the darkness of hell. There is no place like hell, for there is no loneliness like the loneliness of hell. There is no place like hell, for there is no restlessness like the restlessness of hell. There is no place like hell, for there is no endlessness like the endlessness of hell. We sing the hymn concerning grace. When we have been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing thy praise than when we first begun. What is true of heaven is true of hell. When you have been in hell ten trillion years, in the darkness, the torments will have just begun. There is endlessness in hell. It never ends. The saddest road to hell is to pass by the Word of God. That's the saddest road. And we've talked about people that are incarcerated in prison. We've talked about people living scandalous lives. And there are people out there that have hardly heard the gospel, even in our own little country. But you have heard the Word of God. And you know what the Bible teaches. And you can almost teach the way of salvation yourself. But yet still you are without God and without hope in this world. And you're on the highway to hell from God's house. And that's a solemn and a serious thing. And you need to realize that and understand that tonight. That there is this universal prison house. All are under sin. But secondly, let's think about the unique escape. So, what is the out-of-jail-free card? How, how do we get out? If, if there is this terrible prison house, under the curse of God, facing damnation and judgment, then you need to know how to get out. And Paul says here in verse 22, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. By faith of Jesus Christ. That's the, the key phrase here. By faith of Jesus Christ, there is an escape through Christ. The only escape. The only way out. The only path to freedom. The only path to heaven. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I find it interesting that Paul says here, but the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given. Whenever you understand your sinfulness, whenever you're convicted of your sin, whenever you have a fear of God, whenever you go to bed at night and fear that you'll never see the light of another day, and you're unsaved, well, that's when you realize you need to be saved. And you do need to be saved. 
and the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given. This is grace. This is mercy. It's not what we do. It's not what we deserve. It's not what we merit. It is what God does, and it is what God gives. It is all about Christ, and Christ is the greatest gift that ever was. The great distinction between true religion and false religion is that false religion always says you have to merit something, you have to work at something. There's some little spark of goodness within you, and you can get into the, the favor of God. But true religion says, no, there's nothing good in me. I am a wretched sinner. It's only God's grace can save. It's only Christ that can save. Grace is what is done for us. And faith is all about grace. Whenever we use this word faith, what we are saying is this. You're receiving the gift. The gift has been paid for. The gift has been purchased. The gift has been made ready. And all you have to do is receive. And it is not your receiving that buys that gift. Faith is not a work. By faith, you're accepting that you need the gift. By faith, you're humbling yourself to say, there's nothing I can do. And without Christ Jesus, there is no hope. Faith is resting on Christ alone. And so Christ is offered. And Christ is presented. And Christ is provided. And all you need to do is accept it's the faith of Jesus Christ. It's not the faith of a church or of a creed. It's not the Protestant faith or the Catholic faith or the Free Presbyterian faith or whatever. It's the faith of Jesus Christ. But what is this faith of Jesus Christ all about? Well, that's where we come back to Verse 13 again, where we read about the curse of the law. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one hangeth on a tree. These hymns tonight have been taking us to that place. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. As we pass by the cross of Christ and as you see the Lamb of God whose hands and feet were nailed for you, he fixes his loving eyes on you. Do you see those eyes? Built with love and compassion. Loving you as no man ever could love you. Giving his life for you. We're standing near that cross. And he sees you in your sin. And there's the gift being offered. 
and he died for you. My Lord, my love is crucified. A great work was done that day. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. How is it that the law can curse the Christian no more? Because Christ paid the price. He took the curse. We've talked about the awfulness of the curse. But he was made a curse for us. I can't understand that. I can't explain that. How the only begotten Son of God could ever be made a curse for us. How he could take the wrath of God that is our due. How he could do such a thing. You think of everyone here that's a Christian. And he has taken the eternal hell of each and every one of us. And you multiply that up by the tens of thousands of Christians, the hundreds of thousands, the millions. And he's taken the eternal hell of each one upon the cross. The pain of that. The suffering of that. Paying the price for each and every one. For sin is a deeply personal thing. Your sin is personal to you, just as my sin is personal to me. And he has taken the personal sin of each and every one of us upon that cross, being made a curse for us. And the word redeem, it means to pay a price. And he paid the price. In the shedding of his precious blood, that was the price. You think of the darkness of hell he went through, the horrible darkness of the cross, an unnatural darkness. You think of the loneliness of hell. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was a depth there, a depth of suffering, a depth of pain, a depth of shame, a depth of humiliation. But he did something. He satisfied every demand of that law. Because we know that the law is a very thirsty thing. Whenever the law is broken, the law cries out for judgment. That's true of the law of a land. That's true even more of the law of God. But he satisfied every demand of that law in order that we might have hope and peace forever. Is Christ worthwhile trusting? We've talked about taking the gift. Is the gift worthwhile taking? Is the gift good enough? Well, obviously for you, you have determined up until this point in time that the gift is not good enough, and therefore you've refused it over and over again. But you've been foolish, and you've been ungrateful, and you've been selfish, and you've been blind. Is the gift good enough tonight to take? What are you going to do tonight? It's not about what you'll do at another gospel meeting. It's not about what you've done in the past. It's about now. It's about today. Will you take that gift? That instead of the NHS, something that's treasured about the NHS is free of the point of delivery. You hear that all the time, don't you? And yet we know there's a price, there's a cost, and it's so expensive. But this is about health for your soul, health for eternity. And it's free at the point of delivery. Because Jesus has paid the price. There's nothing left for you to do. And all you have to come, do is to come and 
put your faith in Christ alone. Let's also think in closing about the unparalleled freedom. We look again at this text, and it says, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. And the key word is promise. The promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. The promise. What, what is the promise? What is the promise that is yours if you will come and put your faith in Christ? Well, it's the promise of freedom. You look there at verse 6 of Galatians 3. Even as Abraham believed God, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was made righteous as he believed. What was true of Abraham is even more true today. To be justified is to be able to stand before God without guilt. It is to have the righteousness of another, and that's the righteousness of Christ, because he took our sin that we might have his righteousness. Our sin is transferred to him that his righteousness might be given to us. And that's why the law is silent where the Christian is concerned, because we have the righteousness of Christ. We stand in him, and that's the promise. That's what it is to be free, free from the, the guilt of the law. That's the promise. That promise is yours tonight. We are promised that we will be the children of God. You look there at the verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 29 talks about being an heir according to the promise. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. And this promise is a covenant. And earlier in this passage, we'll not go back to it now, but Paul talks about the, the covenant that a man makes. Whenever you enter into a, a covenant, and you, you sign your name to the dotted line. You can be held accountable for that. You can suffer severe penalties because you've broken the terms of that engagement. It's a contract, a serious contract. Well, God has entered into a covenant that those that put their faith in Christ will be His people forever, that all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh unto me I will never cast out. There's total assurance there. There's total peace there. There's total liberty there. There's eternal rest there. You can go out and face the world and face life and face everything that the world may throw at you. You can face all of the, the difficulties and trials and tears and heartbreak. You can face all of that knowing that I am Christ's forever. That's what it is to be a Christian. Therefore, I appeal to you tonight to come, to take Christ, to embrace Him as your Savior. Don't refuse the gift. For Jesus said, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray for the dear unconverted friend tonight. Give grace 
We come to Jesus. For Christ's